0: What do you think of when I say the 1990s? Grunge music? Friends? We all remember that. But what you might not remember is that 61 million people were using pagers and smartphones didn't exist. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and on my new podcast, History of the 90s, we go inside the stories that defined a decade. From 90210 to the Long Island Lolita. Listen for free to History of the 90s on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Wednesday, February 5th. We begin with an update on Calgary's Public Safety Task Force. We get reaction from Ward 5 Councillor George Jehal following the announcement by City Hall that the task force is going ahead.
1: Next, the latest on the Trans Mountain Pipeline. We hear from an energy expert from the School of Public Policy on news that the Federal Court of Appeal has dismissed the most recent challenge to the project... And what it means to Alberta.
0: Calgary is one of the fastest growing cities in Canada, but new data suggests while our population has increased substantially in the last decade, one segment has actually shrunk. We find out why Calgary is losing citizens in their early 20s.
1: Then we had stateside for the lowdown on last night's State of the Union address by President Donald Trump. Reggie Cicchini, Global National's Washington correspondent, gives his thoughts on a speech that sets social media on fire.
0: And finally, we catch up with nature doctor, Dr. Axel Morenschlager from the Calgary Zoo. Dr. Morenschlager tells us about his upcoming trip to Scotland to recognize organizations that are making a positive impact on the environment.
1: 619 on the morning news. Uh, Ward 5 Councillor George Chahal is a vocal supporter of the need for a public task force in Calgary. Task Force was uh, brought to Council yesterday. We're joined now by Councillor Chahal with details on the approval. Good morning, Councillor. Good morning. Thank you for having me. This uh, this seems to have gone through fairly quickly, and I think that uh, all <clears throat> Calgarians will say that was the way to move this ahead. You feel the same, I guess?
2: Yes, definitely. I think this is uh, an extremely important issue facing our city, and Calgarians have... Uh, have consistently talk about public safety as a concern particularly over the incidents we've seen over the last year facing our our city and many of our communities with the rash of uh, violence that has occurred
0: george there was some concern about you know police not being necessarily involved in this and i know you had to sort of change the wording a little bit and make it far more community based so can you tell us what this task force will now be doing for us here in
2: the city well, the calgary police service was always a stakeholder but i think we wanted to just make it more clear that they are an important stakeholder but this is about community it's a community-based public safety task force where we want to really take a holistic view and approach on how to deal with violence in our city and uh, that's involving all levels of government coming to the table that's involving uh, the police service and the police commission as important stakeholders and participants But really it's getting and with folks in the community, organizations who provide these prevention services from schools to academia to ensure that we cover off all aspects of this and have the right prevention programs and do an appropriate gap analysis and look at other jurisdictions on their best practices so we come forward with the appropriate solutions and recommendations to tackle this issue.
1: It is quite complex, uh, Councillor, in the sense that it's not just gun control. We had news a couple of days ago about the stabbing on the LRT platform. So uh, many different pieces to this. Is, is that one of the reasons you wanted, uh, you know, all partners on board?
2: Correct. I mean, the ain't just about gun violence, and gun violence is uh, a big part of this, the guns and gangs issue we've been seeing, it is about all aspects of violence. I mean, you know, with uh, gun violence in particular, we see... A targeted shootings you see suicides domestic violence um, which is a big concern and and some of the gang activity and the violence that occurs from drug related instances but we've seen um, as you mentioned uh stabbing at a c-train station um just the other day there's a shooting in a community where an individual took a bus to the hospital um you know there's lots going on throughout the city and there's many different challenges but we have to look at this not just from a law enforcement angle we also need to look at it from a prevention angle. And really, how do we get to the root of many of these issues? How do we deploy the appropriate resources? How do we have the appropriate programs to meet the needs of Calgarians today so we do have safe and secure communities?
0: Well, we're glad it's moved forward, and we'll be watching to see how we, the public, can actually help out with this. Thanks for joining us, Councillor. Appreciate it.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me. Have a great day.
0: You too. That's Ward 5 Councillor George Chahal. Well, the Federal Court of Appeal dismissing a challenge to the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion yesterday, clearing the way for the $7.4 billion project to get the go-ahead moving oil from BC to Alberta. We're speaking to an expert now about this decision and what it means. Brian Livingston is a fellow at the School of Public Policy. Hi, Brian. How are you today? Thank you. I'm good. Thanks for joining us. I think obviously a a hugely important decision yesterday. Is this or does it appear to be the final legal hurdle that we needed to get past to to get this thing rolling?
3: I would classify it as the last major hurdle. The only hurdle that's left is that... The applicants, the four indigenous groups, do have the right uh, to ask for leave to appeal from the Supreme Court of Canada, and they have indicated in a press, in a um, basically a media event yesterday, that that's what they intend to do. Now, when they do that, there's no guarantee that they will get leave to appeal. The Supreme Court is a busy place, and they don't hear every case that uh, where people do ask for leave to appeal. But that is their last, uh, their last okay. available legal step.
1: So with this appeal, of perhaps a potential for it, does this mean construction cannot begin or could they actually start construction?
3: I think they have already started construction mm-hmm. and I think that construction will continue.
0: Do you think any appeal would even get any further? I mean, it was a unanimous decision yesterday. So is there any further room? It looks like the judges all said that the Canadian government has done what they needed to do in order to you know, make sure that they heard the messages that were, that were put across to them.
3: Well, it's always difficult to predict exactly what the Supreme Court will do. Mm-hmm. But I would agree with you when you say that the judgment was very thorough, very lengthy, by three very esteemed judges. And you're right, it was unanimous. So uh, that, that bodes well as far as uh, as the pipeline continuing and the Supreme Court, even if they hear an appeal, uh, eventually dismissing appeal. But, you know, as they say, you that's, never why know. They go, that's the, you never know. That's why they go to court. And uh, we'll have to wait and see.
1: Economic impact, uh, if the oil starts flowing in the next year or so, uh, can we put a dollar figure on what this would uh, mean for the economy?
3: Well, I think uh, to put a dollar figure on it, the the gap or what they call the spread between light and heavy, I think, would narrow. How much it will narrow uh, is a good question. But for every dollar a barrel that it narrows, there's a significant effect uh, and impact both on the cash flow for the oil companies as well as the royalties for the Alberta government.
0: I didn't hear what Justin Trudeau said yesterday, but I did hear Jason Kenney's response. And he actually, you know, gave props to Trudeau and the Liberal government for, first of all, buying the pipeline and for making sure that they got this next step done. So uh, did we hear a response from him yesterday, the Prime Minister?
3: I have not heard a response from him. Uh, there are several other things. The co- The coronavirus uh, issue has been much on his mind, mm-hmm. I think, and that was the lead item on all the news last night. But I, I would think he would say, you know, this is, this is a good thing. It will mean this it will proceed. Proceed. Uh, you're right, Kenny said. Uh, Premier Kennedy said good, uh, good on him for buying the uh, pipeline two years ago, getting it through all the, these political hurdles, and good on him for uh, bringing about a, a successful uh, federal court of appeal case in which the court of appeal said that the, uh, the consultation had been adequate.
0: Thanks for your thoughts this morning, Brian. Appreciate you.
1: Thank you both. Brian Livingston is a fellow at the School of Public Policy. on the morning news, Calgary's uh, population has grown by more than 20% over the past decade. And while the overall numbers have surged, there's one demographic that's actually declined during that time. Those are Calgarians aged 20 to 24. Is it brain drain or just a lack of opportunities for the young Calgarians? With her thoughts, we're joined by Laura Hambly, president of the Calgary Career Counseling Center. Good morning, Laura. Good morning. Why do you think we are seeing young Calgarians leave the city?
4: Well, I think that uh, there are, it's tougher to get your first uh, career opportunity here than it was before. Mm -hmm. Opportunities are more limited, um, competition is higher, so young people are having to uh, move to other locations for opportunities.
0: Also hearing from young people specifically saying, you know, the arts, the music, the culture, we don't have it here and we're not putting the money into it because our city isn't doing so well and they can find that other places and that's what interests them.
4: I mean, yeah, to some extent. I I mean, I think Calgary has come a long way. I mean, I grew up here in the 70s, Yes, just seeing what it is today. I mean, there's so much more than there was. But in comparison, we're still um, heading in that direction. And uh, yeah, so if that's very important to you, then um, moving makes sense to some young people.
1: Does this happen in other cities, Laura, or is Calgary kind of an isolated case?
4: I mean, I think young people speak with their feet, right? They move um, to locations that that match their values and their lifestyle, which is why we've seen a lot of young people come to Calgary over the years for the outdoor lifestyle we have here and and the vibrant community we have. I mean, in so many ways, we're a young and entrepreneurial city. So I find it really sad that uh, we're losing some of our young talent because we need that talent and those brains in our talent pipeline and organizations here,
0: mm-hmm. and you know that research is showing that kids might be going away to university, and instead of coming back, they're staying in the cities where they're going to school. So, so what do we do to keep or to bring those twenty somethings back to Calgary?
4: Well, so we continue to improve our economy. Um, we can. We need organizations to make room for young people, right? Even if it's a stretch, because what's happened is they're top heavy. Um, And we need that young talent. So, you know, making more opportunities and really looking at how do you retain and engage that Generation Z, they're called, that generation that is in their early 20s and really giving them opportunities and development and growth and appealing to their values and understanding what the values are of Generation
1: Z. What would be the impact on our city if this trend continues, say, for the next five or 10 years? Would we see that uh, economically?
4: Um, Well, I think we absolutely would. I think there's going to be a war for talent when we don't have the young people entering the organizations, and the boomers continue to retire. They've retired slower than we predicted because they've had to hang on because of these difficult economic times. But what I'm really concerned about as an organizational psychologist and working with a lot of companies is that there's gonna be this push and war for talent. And it's only the companies with the best cultures and the best practices to engage these younger workers that are gonna be able to to capture that talent. And Mm -hmm. the rest are gonna be really be struggling. And I think it's a sad situation because I'm really proud of our city. I I think our city is resilient, resourceful, vibrant in so many ways. So um, being compared to Winnipeg, for example, I find that really disheartening.
0: And, you know, I think too, Lori. you know, you talked about the talent pool and how great it is and why we need to keep it or bring it back. But, you know, entrepreneurship seems to be a field that's really growing here in Calgary, especially as we start to make slightly that shift from oil and gas. So, you know, we need to, I think, get rid of this, the negativity around, ah, Calgary's in a slump and, you know, it's not going to be good for so many more years. It can't be negative if you want young people to stay and feel vibrant about it.
4: Exactly. And that negativity Sue, can take on a, a life of its own. It's that doom and gloom talk. So at Calgary Career Counseling, people come to us and they're they're feeling that doom and gloom. They, they're not happy in their career. They want to switch into the careers or they want a new job. Um, and we really help build up that optimism, right? It's not all doom and gloom. Um, and the doom and gloom can really get you down and impact your emotional health. And, and really, there's a lot of good going on here. There's areas of growth going on here. There's so much opportunity still, especially if you're entrepreneurial and adaptable.
1: Well, thank you very much for joining us and uh, discussing this with us, Laura.
4: No problem. My pleasure.
1: Laura Hamley is president of the Calgary Career Counseling Center.
4: Last night,
0: President Donald Trump gave his third State of the Union address with his thoughts on the speech, what came before it, and what came after it. We're joined by Global National's Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini. Hi, Reggie. Good morning. Uh, I don't know where you want to start, whether it's with the handshake that never was, the uh, paper that was ripped at the end, or the actual State of the Union address itself.
5: I mean, look, this was, a, this was a night that nobody really uh, knew what to expect from beginning to end. And as we say with this president, expect the unexpected, but now we also have to expect the unconventional to become more mainstream.
1: Well, and something we uh, spoke about yesterday was the fact that he would be maybe talking about November. This was a, uh, just a sales pitch for November to at the meat of the matter, as far as I'm concerned.
5: Absolutely. I mean, this was a campaign stump speech in in kind of a very subdued kind of way, except for when you had the GOP chanting for four more years. Mm-hmm. But the president essentially used the time that he had to talk about the economy and kind of ride this big economic boom that the U.S. is going through right now. But then he tried to lay out some what appeared to be campaign policies, wanting to get education choice out there, trying to get lower prescription uh, health care costs, although that also led to some jeers from the Democrats who said that they already have a bill that was passed in the House and has sat dying in the senate now for uh for months and months and months but this was essentially an opportunity for the president to speak to not only the gop in the room but that gop base that sits at home and watches every word that he has to say it did nothing to move the needle to try and pull in any moderate or questioning people who may want to come to his side
0: i mean much of it was true albeit uh, exaggerated in many cases no doubt did anybody do a fact check on this state of the Union address?
5: Oh, absolutely! I think every network had three or four people that were working to fact check, and there were a couple of things that the president said that were just actually in a cr- incorrect. And when we talk about healthcare, he was saying that the pre- that he will, you know, take his party and work to protect people with a pre-existing condition from not being able to get any kind of insurance. And it's just factually wrong because the president's administration is actively working with more than a dozen states to repeal and overturn the Affordable Health Care Act, which would allow for someone with a pre-existing condition to get coverage. He also talked about the border wall, saying that more than 100 miles of wall has been constructed. 90 miles of wall has been constructed, but it's actually just been reconstructed. It's not new wall that's been out there. So it's the little things that he talked about in 2016 that he's still riffing on right now that simply just don't have the facts and kind of the metrics underneath it to back them up as real things.
1: A couple of uh, points where you saw the uh, Democrats and Republicans coming together was the mentioning of uh, Venezuela, for example. So it wasn't all uh, partisan to a certain extent.
5: No, absolutely not. That was a big moment for Juan Guaido to be able to you know, be brought in as a guest to the State of the Union, but also within the next couple of hours to be welcomed at the portico of the White House and sit down with the President in the Oval Office. This was one of those bipartisan uh, moments inside the State of the Union that shows that sometimes the President does have the right uh, kind of motives at heart when he's trying to uh, better another country, Uh, but they were few and far between for when people were standing up together outside of, you know, trying to clap for people in the audience not clapping for the person who was standing at the front of the room
0: how are the incidents before and after playing in the media and with the public in the u.s this morning and i refer specifically to donald trump not shaking nancy pelosi's hand at the beginning and then nancy pelosi ripping up his speech at the end both came across i don't care what side you're on is very juvenile
5: Well, I mean, look, people tried to say at the beginning, maybe he just didn't see her hand out there. But the more you watch it over and over, it looks like it was just an uh, an overt attempt to ignore Nancy Pelosi trying to extend the gratitude. But at the end of it, Nancy Pelosi's motive to kind of rip up that 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 address sheet by sheet is being criticized by a number uh, of Republican members of the Senate also being uh, kind of ripped apart on Fox News this morning as kind of tearing up the State of the Union tearing up uh, the the legacies of people that were mentioned inside the State of the Union but Nancy Pelosi has been doing this for a long time she knows how to make a politically calculated and measured move understanding what the fallout is going to be and this realistically was a move out of Donald Trump's book this is something that the president may have done to try and and get attention away from something else and on him. Nancy Pelosi just kind of did it to herself by putting the spotlight on her. It's the mm-hmm. second State of the Union in a row now where people are talking about Nancy Pelosi and less so about the president.
1: Well, an interesting timing. Of course, he had the whole nation's eyes and ears last night. And today, uh, are we still expected to find the outcome for the impeachment trial?
5: We are. We're expecting a vote around four o'clock local time in D.C., and we're actually just getting a better insight as to how this is going to work. Uh, some of the senators are coming forward to say how they intend to vote. And one of them just making a note within the last couple of minutes, Doug Jones, a very vulnerable red state Democrat who's up for election in November, says that he will, in fact, vote to convict the president, said it was some long, hard nights that he was thinking about this. But it is looking more and more like this is not going to be a bipartisan uh, kind of uh, acquittal for the president. It doesn't look like there's going to be any Democrats who side with Republicans to acquit him fully. He will be acquitted. There is no question about that. There is not going to be a 67 count to uh, evict the president from the Oval Office. But at the end of the day this is going to be a big moment for the president and you can imagine that the victory lap from Trump is going to start within the moments afterwards.
0: Reggie, let's talk about uh, some nice moments that came from the State of the Union address last night and that were uh, a couple of military Highlights the introdu- introduction of the uh, one of the final Tuskegee Airmen, and then bringing home uh, a military family member. I mean, that was pretty sweet to see, and it was uh, one nice part of what was going on last night. It-
5: It was. I mean, this was this was the president showing that he knows how to work television and he knows how to create a visual atmosphere for somebody if they're not paying attention to what he's saying. These were two big moments. I mean, it was the introduction of the great grandchild of the Tuskegee Airman who's going to be or whose aspiration is to be a part of this new space force that the president has created and then making uh, the Tuskegee um, Airman a brigadier general kind of the highest rank that you can get and then surprising the family with the military father coming home. These were big moments to try and draw and pull on the heartstrings of people who may have been questioning what the president was saying but those were undercut by the moment of the president offering the uh, the Medal of Freedom to rush Limbaugh this is something that has left people kind of questioning mm-hmm. why this person is getting the highest citizen honor in the United States when he has spent decades disparaging uh, minority communities and using kind of vitriolic language uh, about a good number of people to try and push his far-right agenda that was one of those head scratchers right now that takes away from those moments that were of kind of uh, receiving some bipartisan support. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I'll tell you what, uh, if nothing else, a one for the books. We're not going to forget this State of the Union anytime soon, Reggie. Uh,
5: absolutely not. I mean, this is the president's, uh, m- you know, motive of operation. Do something, make everyone talk about it, and try to ignore all the rest of the things that are going around you right now.
0: Well, so much going on. We'll be checking in with you again, no doubt. Thanks for joining us this morning, Reggie. Th- thank you. Reggie Cicchini is the Global National Correspondent. With nearly 500 dead in China, what could be Canada's fifth case of the new coronavirus diagnosed just yesterday in BC? We want to find out more about this virus. What exactly is it? What makes it different from anything else we experience, particularly the common flu? We're joined this morning by Dr. Vanessa Mayer-Stevenson, doctor and specialist at infectious diseases with infectious diseases at the Cummings School of Medicine at the University of Calgary. Good morning, doctor. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. We wanted to kind of get a breakdown from you as to what exactly, or do we know what this virus is and what is making it so different from anything else we've experienced?
6: Well, um, it isn't coronavirus as uh, as we've all been hearing. Coronaviruses are a family of viruses that can cause illness in humans, ranging anywhere from the common cold all the way to these severe progressive pneumonias. And chances are we've had coronavirus in the past in terms of some of the more milder forms of it. Now, these new coronaviruses, in the past two decades, we've had three new evol- evolving coronaviruses crossing over from animals into humans, causing some of these more severe diseases. Um, and so this is the this is the huge concern here. How is it different um, What it, in terms of how it's spreading and what it's causing? Uh, and and comparing this to the flu, I mean, you were asking about that as well. Um, so influenza is... Uh, Also causes a respiratory virus. Both of these, both of these viruses, cause fever, cough, and trouble breathing, um, and um, can lead to uh, severe respiratory problems in in a number of cases.
1: When we uh, compare to the flu, doctor, we hear a lot about the flu killing more people uh, across Canada, North America, maybe worldwide. Uh, But would the uh, deal with the coronavirus be that we don't know everything about this particular virus compared to the flu?
6: Absolutely. So you're right. Influenza is still circulating around Canada and we have over thirty five thousand cases annually in Canada I and mean, then we have far more uh um deaths and fatalities from this in year that, that we're probably not not necessarily aware of uh um on from our day to day basis. You Why said... what's so scary Oh sorry, go, no, ahead. No, yeah. please finish. go ahead. Oh what's so scary about this coronavirus in, in uh coming out of uh Wuhan, China is that we just we don't know what what the extent of this is gonna be. It's still Spreading, it's still progressing there's still new cases being found elsewhere and uh, certainly we're still learning lots about the virus as we uh, as, this, as this whole outbreak and this whole epidemic is evolving.
0: And doctor, you say we've had
6: versions of a coronavirus in the past then? Absolutely. so there are at least there are four strains of coronavirus they typically cause that that, that cold symptoms, so the stuffy nose and that sort of thing and, and chances are we have have contracted at least one of those in our lifetime it's these newer ones that are causing the more severe disease, moving into the lungs, causing the pneumonias, um, that they have uh, they've mutated or evolved to create this more uh, severe version of themselves.
0: What does the, the name corona mean then? Is there is there something behind that?
6: Um, the corona refers to... Um, the way that this virus looks under the microscope. Um, It has, uh, the corona refers to the crown, so the spikes that are on the outside of the virus that that are unique uh, and very distinct to this virus.
1: We mentioned that, you know, these viruses, in this case, perhaps came from the animal world. Is that the similar uh, uh, way that we get flu uh, viruses in our uh, society? Is it a, a similar process?
6: Absolutely. So viruses have the ability to cross over species when they spend time in the same... Both, so in the same person, um, the viruses have a chance to swap their uh, their DNA and, and and trade genes that they can that make them a little more virulent or less virulent. And occasionally, we get what's called a spillover event, and it when it um, it comes goes from animal to human and and it persists. And this is the this is the part um, that's quite similar in terms of how some of these coronaviruses and some of the more severe versions of influenza have, have come to be.
0: Who's more susceptible to get this coronavirus? Is it the same people who would more be more likely to suffer a greater, you know, outcome from the flu? If you know, older people or somebody who has a pre-existing respiratory problem,
6: that appears to be the the situation as it is. So much more vulnerable for the older population. Anyone who's been more compromised, so whose immune systems have been uh, depressed for for whichever reason. Um, but we have certainly had cases that can't fully be explained where people, um, where, where younger individuals have to come. So this, these are the cases that have been looked into in more detail to determine if there's something about these individuals that made them more susceptible or what, what is it that made them um, uh, contract more severe form.
1: With something so new that we've uh, only, and I was mentioning earlier, that maybe Canadians have never heard the term coronavirus until this year. Uh, you read a lot. And one thing I read was that we want to really try to get a handle on a vaccine as soon as possible uh, because it could morph to kind of a 2.0 or a stage 2 version of this virus. Is is that the case? Is that true uh, that it can change up its its makeup?
6: Um, absolutely. Um, again, viruses continually have the ability to mutate now these mutations could actually end up creating a less virulent strain but because we don't know kind of what what it's going to be able to do um we're certainly uh researchers around the world are putting in lots of uh energy and effort to try to go ahead and, cre- and create um a vaccine we even have a group here in canada in saskatoon that's working on uh, developing a-, a vaccine as well
0: doctor we know chances are quite slim especially here in calgary of people contracting the coronavirus but how would you know or would you would it just feel like the flu is coming on
6: so yeah unfortunately in terms of symptoms there aren't really any distinguishing features um by the numbers you're yes you're more likely to have influenza just because we have so much of it circulating in calgary and in canada um but um, the diagnosis mainly comes from the, the history so uh, and largely from suspicion. So if you've been around, uh, if you've been traveling from a place that has actively spreading virus or if you've been around someone who's known to have it, um, then you need to let your health care provider know that they can give you advice on what to do in terms of staying home and, and, and uh, looking after yourself that way. But in terms of being able to distinguish it, unless, unless you've had a clear exposure, uh, there would be nothing to, to different that would okay. in how you
1: present well i think in terms of flu or any sickness for that matter i think uh, as canadians we tough it out maybe take a couple of days off work have some bed rest but at what point of being at home should i say uh, you know what it is time I, I should go see a doctor what should we look for uh, regardless of it's uh, common flu or the coronavirus
6: um so generally i um, any time if you're having trouble breathing to the point where you you can't uh walk across your your house or walk short distances, uh, it certainly is uh, concerning to to get yourself into hospital if you're having chest pain uh, to the degree. uh, Again, all of these things, they could be other conditions as well, and so they need to be investigated. Um, But uh, in terms of um, fevers and and chills and coughs, certainly, yeah, we have those uh, common enough with many different illnesses. But anything that's going to be to the point where you um, can't look after yourself, you're having trouble breathing, having trouble doing your daily activities, it's important to to come in.
0: Makes sense. Great information, doctor. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Not a problem. It's my pleasure. Happy to help. You, you. appreciate it. Dr. Vanessa Mayer-Stevenson is a doctor and infectious disease specialist at the Cummings School of Medicine. All right. The question is, what do Mexican fish, African gorillas and Mediterranean refugees have in common? The answer is, well... Let's find out. From the nature doctor, Dr. Axel Morenschlager joining us, Director of Conservation and Science at the Calgary Zoo. Hi, Axel.
7: Good morning. How are you?
0: Very good. Thank you. That is a bizarre question. So I know you're going to tell us a bizarre answer.
7: Yes. Well, a wonderful answer. Okay. It's going to be wonderful. And so the uh, it's very exciting, actually. When it's, what it's all about is the uh, St. Andrew's Prize for the Environment. And I'm actually off in two, uh, in two weeks to help and pick the winners of this very prestigious prize but sort of before I get there I just want to say that that the collective work that everybody does at the Calgary Zoo to support wildlife conservation mm-hmm. and to take action on it and our supporters and donors has basically put us into a position of credibility where now we actually sit on boards for the for the city, um, advising the provincial environment minister, the federal environment minister, and, and we're more sought after even internationally for our expertise, which is wonderful.
0: That is because kudos to you. You are a board trustee with the St. Andrew's Prize.
7: Yeah, what actually happened is a couple of years ago, I was asked to give a keynote over there. And it was very intimidating because uh, the trustees were lords like lord this and lord that and oh. sir this and sir that and and madam this and, and so basically it, i was very intimidated but what happened afterwards to my surprise and shock is they asked me to be a trustee and so i'm actually the only non-uk trustee on the committee wow. and uh, and the the prize is one of the most prestigious environmental prizes and it speaks to the kind of thing that we believe in and that is that you don't have to be either just pro-business or pro-economy or pro environment, you can be both, all and it rewards above, yeah. those kinds of, of initiatives. So basically, what it is is that every year, um, uh, you know, hundreds of people or organizations all over the world compete for this. The winner gets one hundred thousand U.S. The runners up get twenty five thousand, but all of them will say that the prestige is worth more than the than the the money itself. And so, uh, just by example, what it what it does is that um, we, the last two winners have been. Uh, a couple of really interesting projects one of them is called Plantwise, and it's run out of switzerland and and what it does is it goes in asia and africa and south america it deals with the local farmers that will have some outbreak or pest on their land right mm-hmm. and so the response even for poor farmers is just to buy pesticides if you possibly can dump it on there you don't know what it is hopefully it'll help and so that's bad economically for them because they might be wasting their money and it's bad for the environment because you get all these pesticides going out and so the, what Plantwise has is they have plant doctors that examine it, that uh, tell them what the problem is, what they should do, and then they link digitally to tell others this might be coming and to be able to prevent, wow. be preventative. Brilliant. And it increases the yield as well for farming in a way that's better for the environment. Okay? Another example is from last year is an organization called Sati. And what they did is they actually looked at situations in and around India where they saw that lots of women don't have access to menstrual products. Mm-hmm. And and that, in in many ways, is from a societal standpoint terrible and and, and not dignifying. But, but at the same time, also puts them out of the workforce for a certain period. And so what they did is they have engaged local people to make biodegradable, uh, compostable products from an agricultural byproduct of banana leaves to make uh, menstrual products that on the one hand, in their manufacture, benefit the local people. And secondly, basically allow the the women to participate in the workforce and at the same time have a product that isn't just plastic that's thrown out. in a landfill. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, it's just brilliant. And so so now, uh, yesterday, we had the announcement for the three contenders for the uh, St. Andrew's Prize. And Now, first of all, if you haven't heard of St. Andrew's, St. Andrew's is best known, I think, for three things. Uh, one, is it's the home of golf. Yes. I was going to say, yes. Okay? And I'm not a golfer, but lots of people get very excited about <laughs> this. Yeah. Uh, secondly, it's actually uh, one of the oldest universities in the world, mm-hmm. having been founded about 80 years before Christopher Columbus landed in North America. And thirdly, and this there's a big sign in a coffee shop in St. Andrews, is this is where Prince William oh. met Kate Middleton. <laughs> oh, right?
0: yeah. Well, clearly oh that's God. the most so important there you go. one. <laughs> <Right>. That's <laughs> a big deal.
7: Yeah, but basically the uh, so um, the top three finalists will be coming to St. Andrews, and, and one of them uh, deals with conservation through public health. What it is about is in Uganda, you have mountain gorillas. Have you heard about sort of tours where people go and see the mountain yes. gorillas? Yeah, yeah. yeah I've yeah. seen video of it. Yeah, and so it's interesting because... There's health issues for the gorillas, there's also health issues for people in the surrounding communities, Mm -hmm. and there's a direct and an indirect link The direct link is, for instance, they noticed that with gorillas that they were contracting certain uh, illnesses that people have when they were raiding the the gardens. Yeah, because you were so similar, right? So there's such an exchange, and that exchange can go the other way too. That wildlife can transmit, like right now with coronavirus, with SARS, with all these things. Came from an
0: animal, yes,
7: right? And so, so basically, there's um, looking at those situations, but also looking at how do you how do you protect the forests in a way that's good for the people, so that there's more money for Conservation but also more money to benefit the local people so the kids can go to school that they can get access to health care and things like that so Conservation through Public Health is looking at that is one of the hot contenders. All right, Mexican fish Mexican fish the smart fish group what they do is they've looked at communities of local fishermen uh, that basically aren't getting enough money for their product and and also are working in certain environmentally damaging ways so what they've done is they've they've improved those practices in a way that the uh, fishermen can, can uh, be better in terms of their fishing, but also they've connected them with elusive uh, markets, like when Canadians go to different resorts and have, you know, very nice meals, or in Mexico or in California, where basically they fish sustainably, and this b- brings um, more value to the locals. Brilliant.
0: And yeah. we have 30 seconds. Yes. Don't leave out the Mediterranean 30 girls, refugees.
7: 30 girls of Las so, what it is is that refugees all over the world, there are millions of people in refugee camps right sure. now. Mm-hmm. in one on one Greek island, there are there's so much waste from these refugee camps and and basically, that's bad for the health of the local people but also for the environment. So they go and clean it up, they wash the sleeping bags, recycle all these kinds of things in a way that's better for the environment better for the local beaches and everything like that. And so win-win for solutions are possible. Win-win solutions are possible for people, for the environment in a way that is beneficial to everyone. Wonderful. Well,
1: safe travels yes. to you and you'll have to come back the next uh, visit, update us on mm-hmm. who the winners were. We'll tell you. Yes. Thank you so much. Uh, that's Dr. Axel Morenschlager, Director of Conservation and Science for the Calgary Zoo.